0: Hey, this is Devin Michael with the Higher Quality Podcast. Super excited to be interviewing you. So could you introduce yourself, your role in the company that you work at?
1: Hi, Devin. My name is Jenny Cody Kangas or JCK for short. I am a consultant that helps companies work through really the how for getting talent acquisition right. So whether it's AI regulation, or SOX compliance, or systems in the HR tech side of the world, I'm their guide in that journey with them.
0: What is top of mind for you as a talent leader at your organization?
1: What's top of mind as a talent leader, or someone who works in the talent space, is how do we move forward and truly move forward instead of perpetuating some of the easy excuses that we've had in the past on things, whether it's, oh, it's the vendor's fault or othering or kind of finger pointing and just truly work on what's the problem, how do we reverse engineer better solutions to solve it and move forward knowing that the how is going to be gleaned through our failures and that's going to help us get it right.
0: What is something you wish you knew about leading talent that you didn't know when you first started?
1: I wish I would have known sooner the importance of failure, as it relates to getting things right. I was so afraid to fail when I started out as a recruiter, and what I didn't realize is that, you know, a lot of the times we we think about things as being part of the yes game, but really, like, we need to build our strategies to get to know. And the reverse engineered version of that is getting the yes. And if we're intentional about recognizing what worked, what didn't, what we would change. That's how we sharpen our strategies to get these things right. So that's really, I wish I would have embraced failure a lot sooner in my journey.
0: What's something unique about you as a talent leader at your organization that makes you a perfect fit for that job?
1: One thing that makes me uniquely suited for the work that I do is the fact that in March of 2020, I fell and hit my head and I lost all of my memory and I had to rebuild who I am. And my strategy is whether they're at work or home or life, and really kind of be curious and and try to reimagine the world. And I think that perspective is very helpful for people who are going on these journeys through the the town acquisition space, because it's really easy to get stuck in the how we've always done it. And that ability to be agile and think outside the box or to flow you know, and reimagine things differently, I think is a, it's a very important piece. And it's at its core, it's just, it's who I am foundationally.
0: We made it to the last question. And this one's a fun one. What is the worst question you've ever been asked in an interview?
1: As a woman... Being asked, well, what is your plan with children? Do you plan on having more kids? Because we really need somebody to be committed to the role. And also asking if somebody's pregnant or what their plans are like, kind of regarding pregnancy and, and family planning. It's just so incredibly not okay.
0: What's up, everyone? I'm Devin, the host of Higher Quality. And you just heard my guest today on a qualify interview with me, but now she's here and ready to have a higher quality conversation. See what I did there? I'm joined by Jenny Cody Kangas or JCK for short. I'm going to use that moving forward. So JCK is a, I'll call it AI guru. She's an AI systems and enablement consultant and also an advisory board member for HR.com. But I'm sure I undersold that intro. So JCK, can you take it, add some sizzle to it, tell the world about you and what you do today?
1: Yeah. First, Devin, thanks so much for having me here today. It's great to have a Absolutely. real conversation with some of the space and I appreciate you. Hey, everybody out there. I'm Jenny or JCK. I am a consultant that helps people learn how to get hiring right. And so what does that mean? So often the talent acquisition world, it can be fraught with inefficiencies, whether it's in the tech side, the process side, and the workflow side. And I'm really somebody that comes alongside of I guess people who are on their journeys and helps guide them into how to get those pieces right, whether it's uh, using design thinking or systems thinking and reverse engineering solutions that work for them. Key piece is there's not a one size fits all in anything in our space. And so it's really important to be able to ask those right sharp questions to figure out what's truly needed for that individual person. And then reverse engineer something that works for them. So that's just a little bit about me. And I'm also a AI evangelist, I guess you could say. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot more.
0: Oh, I know we will. (laughs) So before (laughs) we do, though, I always like to bring out a piece of the qualify interview that you did. And one of the pieces I'll bring out is you, like me, sharing this feeling of we need to move forward in talent. And I'll say it for myself tired of hearing the same old excuses of why we're not moving forward as a function. And so when you think about the idea that, hey, Talent acquisition needs to start moving forward and stop using the same old excuses. What does that look like from, let's start with what are those same old excuses that you like that you hear on repeat? And then let's move towards what is some of the ways that moving forward looks like for you?
1: Sure. Great question. So what are some of the excuses I often hear? It's the vendor's fault. The tech doesn't work. I just need to buy something else. Talent acquisition is just broken. We're never going to get it right. There's no hope. What's the point? <laughs> we're trying our best. Is another one that said mm. a lot. Well, we're just trying our best. We've done so much, right? Y'all, here's the deal. If you incrementally move up the bar, so like let's say the bar is in the floor. And if you incrementally move up the bar, yes, you have made a difference. However, and for those of you are listening in audio, I'm holding up, my, up my, my hand and I have a pen in my hand. And I am demonstrating the pen on my hand and then moving it incrementally up. But if you truly know that the bar can be up here, you're selling yourself short because there's so much more that you can do there. And so what does it look like to move forward? I think moving forward, the most important piece is to begin, right? Like I said before, there's not a one size fits all in this space. What's going to work for you? What's going to work for me? What's going to work for my clients? It's not going to be a one size fits all, but they are going to have a crucial similar step in that they are choosing to begin. And so when we choose to begin, we're looking at what's that next, next right step. If anybody who is listening here has children at home or is familiar with the Frozen movie, Anna sings this. I have three kids. So uh, Anna sings this movie about like, or a song about like the next right thing. And that's what you have to remember in the TA space. It's about doing that next right thing, that next right step. We don't have to map the entire staircase or have a blueprint for it. We just need to know what that next right step is. And when you take that next right step, often you're going to find that, okay, the staircase is actually veering this way, or it's veering this way, or something might happen. and You're going to sharpen your strategy. And I'm going to pause. So I'm getting a little passionate and see if you have any follow up questions. <laughs>
0: mm, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Passion was an animal to be my spirit animal, but that made me think of this really great, and it's really only profound to me, it seems, because I've told other people this and it's like, ah, it doesn't land the same. But one of my mentors in my life told me to stop focusing on trying to do things right and start focusing on doing right things. And I don't know why. I mean, that's, that like hits me hard because it's like, if you focus on doing things right, you're only going to think about outcomes and not inputs. And I feel like doing right things is focused on inputs because the outcomes will come from the inputs, if that makes sense. So you saying what you just said, like really reminded me and resonated with that. So kudos.
1: Hold on. I'm writing this down real quick because that's really important for all of you listening. (laughs) Write that down. I always joke that I I tend to to speak in tweetable moments. And like when you're trying to get somebody to get buy into a net new concept, it's so important Mm -hmm. to have those latch on pieces like stop trying to do things right and start trying to do the right things, I always say, I want to get it right. I don't want to be right, which is a kind of very similar piece. But like, I want to get it right. And in order to get it right, you have to know what the collective goal is, right? It's not about me getting my idea to the finish line. It's about getting us to the finish line. And those can be very different things. And so being able to let go of the like, I just want to be right. and want to prove that my idea is the best and understand that. This is about us collectively getting this right. Yeah. It's a different shift. So I love that. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. So how did we get here, right? You're an AI evangelist. You are, I've seen it. You're a speaker at events. You are killing it for all intents and purposes in the talent acquisition world or talent world in general. Where did this begin for you? Like, how did you either intentionally get into talent or fall into talent like many of us out there?
1: I originally fell into talent like many do in this space. I did a project for a company called Panera Bread. They're a local, I'm in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, for those of you who are listening. My local Paneras were trying to figure out what they were doing wrong with talent acquisition. And they brought me in as a project manager who had never touched talent acquisition before because the idea was I, they wanted somebody from outside of the space to kind of give a different view to it. And so I jumped in many years ago, did that full discovery because I'm a project manager by trade. So before we move, we always want to figure out what is like, yes, you come in thinking this is the idea, but so often in project management, the idea that you go to solve is not actually the problem that you need to solve. And so it's by doing that thorough discovery and understanding like what's an underlying issue, what's a symptom, because if you're going to go put any sort of effort in front of something, we want to make sure that we're putting that effort towards issue mitigation, not symptom mitigation. (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, so go into that. And one of the big things that I recognized when I was, I'm a data nerd, was that we were actually losing a lot of people to Taco Bell, which was shocking to me because I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Like, how are we moving, losing people to Taco Bell? And so once I saw this in the data, I started going into Taco Bells. And one of the things that I noticed, this is again, before I understood our space as many years ago. When I walked into a Taco Bell, I knew that they were hiring. Now I know today that that's employer branding, right? But Panera, when I went back and asked like, where's your hiring collateral? Where is this? Where is that? They pulled out the stuff that was copy or content that was off-brand. It had the wrong colors. It had the wrong funds. It had 150 things on a little like placard of characters. And I was like, this doesn't look right. And so I actually went back to Canva And I was like, I'm going to do something that looks right for me. And so I actually rebuilt for our local Panera, the employer brand on Canva. And it ended up getting rolled out. And it was just very simple, clean, got to the point. And so that was my first time in talent acquisition. And one of the things that I recognized in that project was there seemed to be a lot of white space regarding change in talent acquisition. And I wanted to know if it was just that situation or if this is broader to the HR space. So I took on a project as an HR generalist because in my mind, I was like, okay, I've done this talent side. I know nothing about HR. Came across this thing called the SHRM competency model, which is, you know, like here's the area of HR and it's got all these different competencies. And my thought was, how do I get to know like all the different competencies, like the pieces? And so the answer for that was an HR generalist role. And so I went into a project as an HR generalist. That was my opportunity to really dig in and understand like, how does this all work? It was during that time where I asked our benefit broker, you know, I'm really interested in networking. What would you recommend? And she was so funny. She was like, you know, I just have this feeling about you that you would really do well in the HR tech side. There's this networking group called Learn, which is the leading edge of HR tech that's here locally in the Twin Cities. She's like, I think you'd enjoy it. You should check it out. And that ended up being, I guess, my toe dip into (laughs) this world. I volunteered for a conference because, I wanted to go to this LEARN conference, but I didn't have the money in the budget. And if you volunteered, you got a free ticket. And so I volunteered and I was put in front of Jason Averbeck, who's a very well-known speaker in our space. He's a bleep-gen mercer. And I was the greeter outside of his opening keynote or closing keynote, one of the things. And I saw him speak about removing friction from experiences. And I was like, I was hooked. And the other person I saw speak at that time was Stacey Harris. And Stacey Harris is an incredible, incredible data genius who tells stories with numbers. She makes the data consumable so that you can get people to understand and like actually buy into the concepts that you're trying to sell. And I saw her and it's just like, okay, yeah, I want to know more about this. So that was my first kind of step into the space. I was in the space for many years, and I'll get to this part, but I might as well just go into it. In March of 2020, I got COVID-19. And I was in the hospital in kidney failure. I was one of the first patients here in Minnesota to have COVID and ended up in kidney failure. And in the hospital, I fell and I hit my head and I lost all of my memory. I stayed in talent acquisition after that because I had a leader who reached out to me about a role that she had for an organization, for her organization. And she's like, I have this broken tech. I need somebody who can do this. She knew me. She knew that I hadn't done as much as the HR tech side before. But she knew I knew how to learn. And so she gave me an opportunity to begin. So I stayed in the HR space because somebody gave me a chance to begin here during COVID. What I came to find was that I actually just had a post about this today on LinkedIn. When I went into the space, back into the space in 2020, I was so nervous that people were going to look at me differently because I didn't have my memory. And I was like, they're gonna invalidate me as being able to like solve these problems and stuff if I lead with that. And so I hid that part of me. I came to find in this journey for the last three years is that one of the things that makes me so impactful is the fact that I lost my design bias for how we had historically solved these problems in the HR space and the TR in the talent acquisition space. And what I mean by design bias is all of us have a bias for how we solve these problems. That's gleaned from our unique experiences. So like Devin, if I said, I'm going to give you $2,000 to go hire a role, where are you going to put that money? What
0: would your answer be? I actually answer it? Yeah. I'm probably going to hire something in the sales category.
1: Where would you market that role? Like $2,000 to market that role. Where would you put that money? I'm
0: going LinkedIn.
1: There you go. See, and depending on the persona of who you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Your candidate might not be on LinkedIn. Right. And so we all have design biases for how we solve these problems that, again, are gleaned from our unique experiences. And the fact that I didn't have any of those, when I saw a problem, use those you know design thinking skills to understand what is the problem, let's look at it from a 360-degree view, and then let's reverse engineer it to solve that in the most efficient way possible. I didn't have to overcome the, we've always done it that way, mm-hmm. kind of bias, and we don't solve problems that way, bias, and it helped me to be able to move forward and build technology and experiences that I hadn't been done before. I'm going to pause for a second because I have a tendency to just cut it. No, I'm, I'm so, sitting here, yeah. I'm just like
0: just fought it. I'm completely writing this story.
1: Oh gosh. <laughs> so well, so actually, the person who connected us, mm-hmm. so Torin Ellis, I met Torin. So a little bit of backstory: when I hit my head and was recovering from my head injury. I was only allowed to be on a screen for 15 minutes or I'd pass out or have a seizure, which is an issue when the world goes back to being on screens right. because of COVID-19, right? As I was cleared to be able to listen to like any sort of content that wasn't classical music or country music and could finally like listen to actual conversations too because it was too like too hard for my brain. Oh, okay. I was introduced to Clubhouse. And I went on Clubhouse Mm -hmm. and Clubhouse didn't have a screen. So those of you who aren't familiar with Clubhouse, it was an audio-only networking platform. So you could essentially, it could be like Devin and I in a room together and we're just having a conversation. So there wasn't a really barrier to entry. You could have conversations with anybody. It was audio-only, which is really, really important for me because I couldn't be on a screen at that time. So I could just put my phone in my pocket and I could just listen and learn. And it was an option that didn't drain my batteries, which is really important. That's where I met Torin Ellis. And so Torin used to have these conversations that he would have on a regular basis. I didn't know that there was this whole idea of like having like this inner circle in HR and these influencers and analysts things. Because I just thought people are people. You just have, if you have a question, you ask, right? And so got to know Torin very well. Torin also taught me one of the most important pieces that I think about every day, which is when you're building experiences, it's so incredibly important to ask who isn't present here? It's one of the most key pieces to get DE&I right is being able to make sure like when we're going to build those experiences, you think of all the different personas of humans who might be going through this experience and are they going to be uniquely impacted by this? So if I have somebody who's autism, for example, and I have this scoring thing that's going to interview or like it's going to score my interview but it's all based on your responses. And like, I might have a disability or for me, right? I don't have my memory. So Mm -hmm. when I went back into the TA space, a lot of the like leadership evaluation kind of assessments are all based on giving situational based interview responses that are historical, right? right? Which is uniquely doesn't work for me because I don't have all my memory. Right? And so being able to ask that question was just so incredibly important and very thankful for Torin. He's been a great mentor and guide kind of on this journey.
0: Man, I have a lot of questions and this is why I promise it's, it's organic. Go
1: fire away.
0: So I'll start with the one that's most near. So you mentioned it. Who's not included here? I think to I've talked to a few teachers before and there's this concept of teach to the middle, right? So when you're teaching a class, you might have. Especially in certain schools, you might have highly advanced students and unadvanced by the category of the school in the same classroom, Then you have those in the middle, right? And so the idea is like, hey, teach to the middle, and you kind of get a good fit for all is the idea. You're pushing some, you're slowing some down maybe a little bit, but the, it's kind of like the bell curve. When you think about what you just said, which is like, who's not present? the assessment story you said was like, hey, that uniquely left me out, right? Would you say as a consultant, we need to figure out how to do this. This hiring process needs to fit everyone or we don't do it. Or is it teach to the middle in a hiring process? You know what I mean?
1: Great question. And I have three kids who are not in the middle. They're brilliantly, brilliant, brilliantly, like smart on one side, but they also have some social emotional needs on the other side. So they're considered, it's called, two E kids are twice exceptional. And so having teachers that are going to be able to like meet them where they're at, grow that academic side, but then also build them up in the areas where they might be lacking is so important. And I'm thankful that we have a district that works for that. But when, as it relates to talent acquisition, when you're going to build, I think that the general understanding right now today is you need to build your processes for the rule. But the truth is, you need to build your processes for the exception to the rule. There's unique use cases that might be outside the box. The person who has autism, the person who's blind, for example. But we need to build our processes for the exception, not for the rule. Right. And it's when we think about that, when we think about like designing for all different options, including I know one of the things that came up in Clubhouse one day, I was building with another vendor in the space. We had a recruiter who is. He's blind. And he's like, cool, tell me how your experience can meet me, right? Because he's like, you're talking about all this cool, sexy tech, but like, how do I go through it, right? And I was like, how have I never thought of this, right? Well, turns out, and I didn't know this before this conversation, the vendor who I was working with, Paradox, they actually had the ability for their chat bot, Olivia, to assess whether or not somebody was using a screen reader. And if they were using a screen reader to respond automatically in voice, instead of responding in text. So like that's a way that you're able to, again, reverse engineer solutions that are going to work for everybody. And another, another example of this is the concept of universally designing buildings in terms of construction. So if I have a building that's universally designed, right, I might have a wheelchair ramp, so somebody in a wheelchair can go into it. I might have Braille, so somebody who's blind can navigate it. I might have just the different aspects so that everybody could be able to navigate that journey. So incredibly important, right? And the flip side of that, if I do that right in universally designed buildings, I have more people of all different diverse areas and backgrounds in that building. That's the same thing that you need to do with talent acquisition. If you reverse engineer solutions that are gonna meet the exception and the rule, the flip side is you're gonna have candidates from diverse backgrounds. It's one of the most critical ways to get DE&I right. We all talk about like we wanted to recruit and we want to meet people with that and X, Y, Z. But then we force people to go through experiences that require them to register on a website or something like that. That's going to make it harder. And it's putting barriers up to them being able to get into our building, which is our applicant tracking system, right? Or into our organization. And that's not what we want to do. Yep. Speaking of that, inclusivity, right? I have a child who's home sick today. So... <laughs> there is my six-year-old and there it all, is. all types are welcome here, right? So.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. When you think about moving forward and how you work with companies, I guess let's start with like, what types of companies do you typically find yourself working with today?
1: So today I'm working with, so I will say before I started this journey, I thought that I needed to look for the specific type of company that I wanted to join, like if they're this big of a size or if they're this complex of an issue or whatever it was, what I've come to realize is like, I want to work with people who are committed to getting it right. So it's actually the buyer, right? So people who don't want to just put lipstick on a peg, or I want people who are going to uncover the real issues and want to get their hands dirty and solve them. And so it's changed my ICP or my ideal customer profile a little bit. Who I'm working with today are people who are, they have a fire in their belly to get this right. Typically, they're doing things that are outside the box from the norm too, because that's one of the things that I love to do is I want to build strong and I want to build in ways that are scalable and repeatable and ultimately that are going to last, right? Because when we build, we want to build something that's secure, that's going to stand the test of time. And you can't scale on a house of cards. It's not going to stand up if friction happens or if, you know, things like headwinds, like a COVID-19 or something, God forbid, happen, right? Like they're going to fall. People that I work with today are people who, again, have a fire in their belly to get it right, are willing to to go on that journey and choose to begin. And if anybody's listening here who fits that profile, reach out to me. I'd be happy to help.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, you're an AI and systems enablement consultant. And I feel like there's a lot to get, like, if I was talking to, if there's 100 people in a room that had that title, there's so many ways Like every person might be different in how they look at that role, right? So for you, is it, and it could be all of them. I'm just going to throw out a few, but is it like AI and systems enablement for the sake of efficiency, for the sake of diversity, for the sake of higher quality, no pun intended, and or is it something else or is it all of them? Kind of what is your bread and butter when you look at it? like If someone's like, hey, I see that you're a AI and systems enablement consultant, I'm also talking to this one over here. They're really focused on this. What are you focused on within that? What would you say back to that question?
1: Yeah, I would say that I am somebody who I'm a problem engineer. It's probably a better way to understand it. So what's the problem for the unique organization? And then let's reverse engineer a solution to solve that problem in the most efficient way, in the most scalable way, in the way that's going to solve for diversity. And so I'm looking at it from like a universal design concept for the building aspect. When I say building, it's the processes, it's the workflows, it's the how-tos, right? So where a lot of people will talk about what and why we need to do something, I'm somebody who helps enable the how. And so it's not just the how we do it for today, but it's how we adopt the mindsets and kind of like our own internal operating systems for how we're going to solve it tomorrow, not just for the problem, again, that we're solving today, but when those problems come up in the future. And then again, because like one of the benefits of my head injury is I'm only able to be on a screen for so many minutes in a day. Otherwise, I'll pass out or, or have a seizure, which is not ideal. But one of the benefits of that is when I look at experiences, I'm constantly evaluating is there a way that we can simplify this? Is there a way that we can do this faster? Is there a way that makes more sense to do that, right? Because for me, I have to do that in my own, it's just part of my operating system. It's one of the reasons that I'm such a huge AI evangelist is AI for me as somebody who has a disability has become a way that's leveled the playing field so much more because my disability affects my ability to have cognitive load, right? Like some things that are going on in my brain. I'm incredibly good at generative AI and I can call out the right sharp prompts that will get me 85% of the way on the things that historically would drain my batteries. And so I'm able to accomplish so much more in a day's time because I'm cutting through the stuff that drains me. And so, yeah, that's not a very linear answer, Devin. I'm sorry.
0: No, it's great. Every time I literally get like, every time you answer something, I have three questions that come out of them. I'm like, man, We're going to run out of time. I bet you in the future, we're going to have another podcast. But for those who are listening, most likely recruiters, talent leaders, thinking about AI, historically, this group of people is a little, they're on the laggard side. So like, just being honest, most of talent acquisition is on the laggard side when it comes to technology, but everyone's thinking about AI in some sort of way right now. Where do you feel like it's a no-no?
1: Yeah, so real quick, because one of the things that I think is really important post-head injury to do is when anything comes up that might not be a universally understood term, I like to pause for a second and just define it. And so when Devin says laggard, he is referring to a concept that comes from crossing the chasm, which is when any time you have any sort of change you typically, it's broken into five pieces. So you have the innovators, you have the early adopters, you have the early majority, you have the late majority, and then you have the laggards. The laggards are typically like 16% of this chasm, which is the bell curve. And so related to, yes, HR tech or in the HR space, we're often a little slower to adopt in terms of innovation. I think a lot of that comes back to, we've trained HR leaders that there is black and white, right? So here is the way you have to do that. And then when things like pandemics happen, where you have to like wipe it all away and like build in gray, it gets a little harder. But related back to AI, where do I think people can get it wrong? Don't use AI for content. Like, and if you're gonna use AI for content generation, you need to remember that it'll get you 80% of the way, maybe 60% of the way. It is not 100% of the way folks. And what I mean by that is, Generative AI, for example, like a chat GPT or BARD, it's a large language model and it's trained on existing essentially everything on the internet that was there before 2021, right? The thing you need to remember is everything on the internet before 2021, a lot of it was extremely biased, especially in terms of charge. And what I mean by that is the male to female charge of the language that comes out of chat GPT, it's often heavily leaning on the male side. And so if that's the case, and I'm saying, let's say I'm, I'm writing my EVP. So like in my employer value proposition or my employer branding side, if I'm doing that and I'm casting this megaphone out there to people and I'm using chat GPT, that's giving me a much, like a much more highly like male leaning content or copies. I'm now casting out to a predominantly male audience. And if my goal is to have, you know, inclusivity, I've now just counteracted that goal. So if you're using it for content, it's really critical to use something like a text that's going to help you understand where the bias charge is in there, because words matter so much. It's really important there. I think AI is so much better utilized to help you build your strategy, to help you source questions that you should be asking. So and one of the ways that I like to think about it is if I was talking to a friend who's like a universal consultant. And I'm just backboarding with them. So I'm like, hey, Devin, I want to do this thing. And it kind of looks like this. I'm kind of thinking that. And I'm just sharpening my idea. That's how you talk to ChatGPT, to say, I am a person who's a consultant that works in AI enablement. I'm talking to Devin who works for this company. And I'm going to be on a podcast for XYZ. I want to come up with six interview questions that might be important or relevant to this space. What might those be? Or it's another use case. I'm looking to build a business case to invest in more technology in the HR tech world. My leadership, based on the most recent 510K or our SEC disclosures, are interested in X. So let me back up a second. It's important when you build your business cases, like for investing in technology, to connect to what's really important at the top from a leadership standpoint. One of the ways that you can do that is go to your SEC disclosures. If you're a publicly traded company, you can copy and paste them into ChatGPT and say, based on this, what are the key areas related to talent acquisition that my organization is interested in or committed to, right? Then you take that and say, based on that, I want to make a business case to leadership for more technology to solve that. Can you help me write the business case? Boom. And oh, by the way, it's for executive leadership, and I've got a you know, cut through the noise, be concise, and increase readability. And it'll help you build things like that. Those are really great use cases for generative AI, not necessarily the content.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Man, the one question I wanted to get that I think people might be curious about, when this incident happened with your head injury, actually real quick, this actually is just my own curiosity. When you were the one of the first patients to have COVID in the hospital. Did you know, was it at the point where you knew that COVID was a thing or were you even before that?
1: No, it was COVID was a thing. Okay. okay. Not only COVID was a thing, but everybody was terrified by COVID. So this is March of 2020 Mm -hmm. for the doctors, for the nurses, for everybody there. COVID was the thing that could kill you. And I was the person who had it. And so it was this incredibly, it was this incredibly interesting experience because when you go to a hospital, you go typically because you need help. But what I experienced was I was the one everybody was afraid of. And so, the first hospital I actually went mm-hmm. to with COVID, I was like, I think I'm dying because so I was really, really, really sick. I went to the ER. The hospital discharged me with the instructions We think you're in kidney failure, but we want you to follow up with your general physician because we don't have the resources to handle a COVID patient right now, which is wow. the hero's dying, right? Like, where and are you so, dying, Yeah, it was, it was crazy. And so I went home and this was like 12 days into it. So technically I wasn't supposed to be contagious at that point, but I had asked my ex-husband to come over and I wanted to see my kids because I didn't think I was going to make it through the night. In case I didn't, I wanted to make sure to say goodbye to them. The next day I decided, I was like, this, this can't be like, I got to try again. And I went to another hospital. And on the way there, I hadn't talked to my parents a lot leading up to this because I wasn't doing well. And uh, I was worried I was going to die. And that was just a hard thing to be able to tell my parents. And I was talking to my dad and he was like, I want you to own that conversation like you're walking into a boardroom. Advocate for what you need. Do not leave until they give it to you. And so I walked into the second hospital, which had actually operationalized for COVID properly. So separate entrances and everything. And I walked up to the nurse who's at the check-in station and said, great news. I survived COVID because I'd gotten through and there's a Reader's Digest article that I'm quoted in about COVID when I had it. I got through COVID and I was feeling better. And so it was day eight. I was starting to feel better. Up to day eight, I had like temperatures of like 106. It was crazy. It was so sick. And then day 13, I was in kidney failure. And so I was like, I got through it, which is great. I survived, but I think I've been kidney failure. And the lady at the desk is like, oh, you too, huh? We've got a whole floor of people like you. Oh, wow. And so here there was all these people like early onset COVID who were going into kidney failure because of, I think the high temperatures and stuff that people are going through, I knew I had COVID. And I also knew that COVID was an abstract fear for so many until I had a face. And so I story told my experience with COVID on LinkedIn and had lots of people that were following it because I was somebody within, you know, typically like six degrees of connection who actually had this, who was really sick with this, who was going through it. It was real. Like it made it real for some right. people. Like
0: you're like a fathomable yeah, person. Yeah.
1: And then when I was in the hospital, so early on in COVID, there was a PPE shortage. So the stuff that nurses and doctors wore to keep themselves safe, there was a shortage of that, which meant if you had COVID and you were in a COVID room doctors and nurses didn't come in very often. And I was in a temporary, like an extra room that they had put up because of COVID and there was no windows in these rooms. And so when I fell and lost consciousness in the hospital, nobody knew. Oh, and so two hours yeah. later, a student who is there as our first day as an intern came to discharge me and found me face down in a pool of blood and I had fallen Got and it. I didn't know what happened. And so This is way before where we are today, which is leveraging people's phones if they're in those rooms or having windows, you know, and and all those things like that.
0: Yeah. And then the last question before we move into the next segment to kind of wrap the, I guess not wrap the bow on it, but wrap up the curiosity piece. Lay in the plane. (laughs) Yeah. When you lost memory, you lost a bias, right? Did you lose literally everything that you've ever done you don't recall? Yeah. Or... Like, it's almost like selective, if that makes sense. Or you literally are like, I am brand new. This is why I'm so good at this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My lived experiences, my memories were gone. There are certain things that were second nature for me, like making a business case. It turned out was like intuitive to me. It was like just part of my operating system. And how I knew that was right after this had happened. I didn't have a ton of language back yet. But I had the ability to understand when a strategy wasn't working. And so I had a call with my neurologist and they were talking about like next steps. And again, I could only be on a screen for 15 minutes or less in a day. And so we're on Zoom. It's counting down. And he's like, yeah, I want you to do puzzles and Legos in your apartment. My house is being rebuilt because of uh, water damage. And it all stopped during COVID because everything stopped. And I was like, cool. Why? And he explained, like, we need a basic, repeatable task to help retrain your brain, like connect the dots, to refire in your brain. It was like, well, puzzles and Legos aren't going to work. How about you clear me to do electrical? And he was like, what? It was like, here's the deal you want me to do a basic, repeatable task? I have 70 outlets to do, it's a basic, repeatable puzzle. You get what you're looking for. I get what I'm looking for in getting my kids closer to home, which is important. He's like, what do you have against uh, puzzles and Legos? And I was like, no, I have a thing against strategies that aren't successful. So like that business case piece was intuitive to me. Things like riding a bike weren't. (laughs) So like I went to go ride a bike the first time. I literally fell over. Another really, really short, fun story. That's
0: wild. So
1: I lost everything about popular culture. And... It would be sometimes really defeating when I'd come across things that like I didn't understand. You're gonna have to break this into two episodes, I think, Devin. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's all good. I'm just writing it out. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. So this.
1: one day my fiance Andrew said, <laughs> He goes, you know, Michael Jordan. And my eyes light up because like I have no poker face, right? So like you can always see what I'm thinking. And he's like, you know who that is, right? I was like, Yes, I know who Michael Jordan is, because like I'm thrilled. I actually know who this person is. And he's like, Cool, who's Michael Jordan? And I was like, he's the character in the first Space Jam movie. I mean, he's
0: like, that's why. You're not
1: wrong. Right. And so <laughs> then he proceeds to, he's very patient with me sometimes, take me through this journey and like teach me who Michael Jordan is and how he like redefined the game of basketball. And he's showing me, I'm like, how does people's bodies do that with dunking? Cause I'd never seen a dunk before. Right. And so he's showing me all these like iconic dunks that are on YouTube or whatever. And we get to one very specific dunk. And I looked at it and I was just like, huh? He's like, why did you say, huh? I was like, nah, it's probably going to sound crazy. And he's like, no, no, no. Why did you say, huh? And I was like, it kind of looks like the Nike symbol. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, where have you seen that symbol? And I was like, oh, you know, on the shoes. And he's like, what are the shoes called? And I was like, like my jaw dropped because mm-hmm. I thought Jordan was the, the designer. I didn't realize Jordan was the person yeah. that would you know, inspired this to happen, but... There's been fun kind of experiences like that. And there's also been things that have happened that so often we just kind of forget how things work. So like when I was relearning sports, we went to a soccer game. I was with my my friend and my fiance. They're like, what's most interesting for you about soccer? And the only experience I'd had of soccer was like I just started watching Ted Lasso. And so that was the only experience i would had to, to soccer. It's like, aren't you guys just perplexed by the fact that this is the only timekeeping that counts up and they looked at me like what Mm -hmm. they're like yes i was like soccer counts up everything else counts down and then there's this magic time in soccer where nobody really knows like what's there like for these penalties or i was like that's insane and they're like huh it's helped people to i guess rethink the kind of why we've always done it so
0: yeah different perspective for sure yeah yeah it's wild All right. Well, I will, I guess, do the next segment of the show because I have to. I don't want to. I would love to keep doing this, but we'll move into the next segment. So basically, this is the opportunity for the audience to get involved. You get first pass at the question of the week. But for those who are listening, the question of the week link will be in the show notes below. Wherever you're looking, it's more than likely below the play button. (laughs) And so your question of the week, JCK, is... What is the most common mistake you see recruiting teams make when setting up a new hiring process?
1: Great question. The most common mistake that I see recruiting teams using when they're setting up a hiring process is they start with the existing workflow or the equation and they try to iterate sequentially like just a little bit from there by changing the different you know the different pieces of that of that puzzle. instead of looking at what's the problem, how do we solve that problem in the most efficient way? So if you're setting up a new way of doing something, don't box yourself in with taking your existing process and just, you know, making the tech fit your existing process. That's bonkers. This is your opportunity to ask what works, what doesn't, what do we change? How can we do this differently? Who's not present here? The Toranellas question. How do we get this right? And what's wrong, right? Like what are we looking to measure? Those are some of your opportunities to take like, again, what's the problem? Get really laser focused on that. And then reverse engineer from a white space. Don't reverse engineer from the existing kind of workflow or equation. And that's, I'd say one of the most common mistakes that I see people go through. Oh, and the other thing that I see people go through, they don't solve for somebody who can't fit the existing process, right? So like it's really important that we have basic repeatable ways that we solve these problems. There's things like the EEOC, right? That are saying like, you have to have the same consistent way of screening people or of interviewing people or of whatever it is, fill in the blank. But within those consistent ways, you also have to have a way to be able to give an accommodation for somebody where that path doesn't work. And so the other piece where I see people get it wrong is they solve again, that one equation But they don't even pay any consideration to if somebody can't fit this exact way, right? How are we going to solve for that? And having like that alternative kind of journey path, I think is so incredibly important. Thinking about that as a pre-mortem is important too. And so pre-mortem is before it happens, right? Like how could we get this wrong? How do we solve it better? How do we build it better? And then post-mortem is on the flip side, like what worked, what didn't, what do we change so you can sharpen your strategy. So I think that would be my answer.
0: Gotcha', well, this is not something I will forget <laughs> this whole podcast is crazy. There's so many gems in here, and I know that the audience whoever it is, I don't even honestly i'm I'm not a recruiter by trade, and I know for sure there's things that I took from this so how can they follow you? yeah, how can people stay in touch with you and continue to learn about the world of j c k
1: absolutely so Follow me on LinkedIn, best Today. Yeah, send me a message, add me on there, just connect. And if you see me you know, at a, at a networking event, whether it's HR Tech or RecFest or whatever, come say hi and also connect the dots for me. Like, hey, I heard you on this show, right? It will be great. So thank you so much again, Devin, for taking the time to have me on the show. This has been an amazing experience and I truly, truly appreciate it. And wholly cool product because I got to use it through this journey, which was so cool too. So thanks for the little taste as well. <laughs>
0: appreciate it absolutely well if you enjoyed this as much as i did make sure that you subscribe so you never miss a beat there's gonna be more episodes just like this but until then we'll see you on the next one thanks